Blog Talk Radio. of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I have a number of people joining me here in the chat room. Rob Abiera has given me a link to the story that I saw, and I saw this story just after I was making a little Facebook preview video for you guys for today's show. I had a big plan for today's show, but we are to talk about this story in the show today. Ohio State Press attack on the night attack. So at Ohio State University, there has apparently been an attack, and perhaps it's a jihad attack is what I have heard. The small FG lived near campus, was a legal permanent U.S. resident. The attack was carried out by a car and a knife. Here's the description. A vehicle ran into a group of pedestrians, people who were gathered on a street corner, resulting in several injuries. The driver then got out and used a weapon, the knife, I guess, to cut several people who were then transported to local hospitals. Drake praised the Ohio State University police from keeping, quote, something that was very unfortunate from becoming much worse, end quote, and he expressed hope for a full recovery for all victims. Gosh, I hope so. Um, so this is horrible. I guess this is going to be a developing story, and we're going to need to learn more. Some people are suspecting the jihad attack because it is a Somali refugee, but I guess we're going to have to wait and see to learn more about that. So thanks, Rob, for posting that link to the story in the chat room. Uh, If you want to go ahead and give me any updates during the course of the show, if we learn any more than that, let me know. Otherwise, I'm going to go ahead and try to stick with the original plan that I had for the show. I'm wondering if I've scared people away with my title today. I've been having fun with titles Uh, Last week I had a title that was a bit risque. This week I have a title that's maybe a bit too geeky. And the title is Law of Conservation of Dictatorial Energy. And I put a question mark on the end of dictatorial uh, energy because we are still having this debate about whether Trump has dictatorial tendencies. There's a couple pieces of evidence of those tendencies today, and I'm going to go ahead and bring those up. 
in the, you know, in the program notes. So don't let it go.com. You can check it out if you want to preview there, but here's the idea. You remember the law of conservation of energy in physics. So imagine that there's this fixed amount of dictatorial energy in the world and that in order for Trump to do all the things he's doing to, you know, lead up to his taking office in January, the transition, so to speak, in order for him to even start doing this stuff, which in which he is exhibiting these dictatorial tendencies, right? Um, if he hasn't already, in order for him to do that, Fidel Castro had to die. Now, mind you, Fidel Castro, you know, we, we could play with this in so many ways, right? Because Fidel Castro was near the end of his life. And you could say that the amount of dictatorial energy that he was exhibiting was not very much. So even if he dies and then, you know, Trump takes that on, it's not a whole lot of dictatorial. And so maybe he's not going to be that much of a dictator. He's only going to be sort of a We could play with this, right? We could play with this a lot. But anyway, that's the title. Hope you will indulge me and sit around for the ride. Waldo in the chat room here says, at the very least, Trump completely condemned Castro, yes, that was good. But if you look at, for example, Ted Cruz's condemnation of Castro, you've got a lot more principled understanding of why Castro was bad, a lot more substance than you would ever get from a Donald Trump. Um, but yes, it is good that Trump completely condemned Castro because one of the things that we want to talk about is the fact that the future of Cuba in part depends, maybe in large part, huge part, depends on the reaction of all the different world leaders to Castro. What's their opinion of Castro, that they're expressing their opinion of his death, and we're going to look at some of that as well. So like I said, go to don'tletitgo.com and check out all the program notes. Mo in the chat room asked this question, how much of Trump's authoritarian rhetoric comes from a dictatorial tendency versus being sourced from, from low self-esteem? And my opinion on stuff like that is that it does not matter, right? Um, if somebody is a rights violator, I don't care if that person is the rights violator because he's got low self-esteem or a bad upbringing or any of these other psychological reasons, right? Because we all have our stuff, all have our stuff. We've, you know, I've had a, you know, horrific upbringing and there's a lot of people who have had, and yeah, that's going to affect you in your life in some way. And you're going to be maybe treating people ways that sometimes you wouldn't necessarily want to, but you can, Stop yourself, at least at the point of rights violating, if not before that. So this idea, well, he's got low self-esteem. And so therefore, there, I'm sure there's tons of dictators who had low self-esteem. I don't, the psychological reason is not so important to me. People like to dub him as a narcissist and everything. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. But what I'm looking at more is the policy, right? I'm looking at the policy. What is it that this guy thinks he's going to do? The other things that you want to talk about are epistemological traits that have been exhibited by dictators in the past. And someone who's spoken a lot about that in the objectivist world is Greg Salmieri. But we're going to see a little bit of evidence of, of that today as well. I'm going to show you some of that. <laughs> Tim in the chat room, he says, alert, Trump is still not perfect. That's right. Trump is not perfect. 
And I've obviously, I'm not going out there saying he's going to be Hitler. I'm not saying that. And, but I am having some fun with the show title. And yes, he is doing some things that are, you know, things that have been done by dictators and things, and he's doing some bad things or he's, he's in, you know, announcing an intention to do some not good things. So we need to stay on him. Uh, some people the other day, they were talking about, you know, New York Times, I'm going to cancel my subscription because they were, and, and the, I don't know if you guys checked this out the other day, the New York Times, when Fidel Castro died and they posted their story, they had this picture that just made him like, look like the coolest dude, right? Castro just looked like the coolest dude in this picture. He's smoking the cigar and it's from the side and the lighting is just so, and you know, everything he's, he was ugly, but you know, as, as attractive as you could ever make him look, this was the picture. And that's horrible. And a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to cancel my subscription to New York times. But right now I find a, you know, a publication like New York times valuable because I expect that they're going to be giving us all the information that we need about Donald Trump in order to form our critiques. We need to go out there. We need to stay on him. Anytime he is exhibiting a tendency that makes him look a dictator, we need to point it out, critique it, stay on him, as much as, of course, he's going to allow us to, as much as we're going to still have the right to free speech. Rob says, could he be as bad as Obama or worse? I think, you know, that remains to be seen. And as I said, I'm going to point you to particulars. And the integration and the induction that we're going to do from this is going to come later. So, you know, again, I'm just going to stay on this. We've got four years of a Donald Trump presidency and in order to preserve our rights, we're going to have to up our game. We're going to have to, you know, insofar as he is going to appoint maybe some better people, who knows, maybe he's going to appoint a John Allison to the treasury. Nonetheless, we're going to need to be vigilant to distinguish whatever is being done there from objectivism and say, you know, the mere fact that John Allison is himself an objectivist, does not mean that what Trump does is going to be consistent with objectivism. And so this is the the sort of stuff that we have to stay on. But again, I'm, I'm going to get to you at the level of, of particulars and tell you why I find certain things objectionable and alarming. And like I said, we're going to do the, the integration and the induction as we go along. Rob says, I think we should keep in mind the context of your last show, the last couple shows, right? So I had the show about premature evaluation. Actually, both of the last two shows, premature evaluation and the, you know, the cabinet picks, the good, bad, and ugly picks, those two shows I linked to in today's program notes. So Rob, you and I are thinking alike uh, along those lines. Do go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, and you can see all of the stuff that I have planned. The first link that I give you is just Wikipedia Conservation of Energy, just to let you know what was on my mind as I came up with the show title. It's been a long time since I've taken physics. I took physics as an undergraduate at UCLA as part of this 
individualized major that I put together. The major was called Math Applied Science, and they offer that as a, as a major, but you can customize it and you can, you know, choose to what do you want to apply your math, you know, apply math, apply your math to your science. And the two that I chose were physics and economics. And I did much better academically in economics that I, than I did in physics in part because I think, and, you know, again, I have to do some more research into this, but I have heard that women do have this problem conceptualizing things in three dimensions and sort of imagining the rotating of a three-dimensional object in their mind. And this is something that is necessary for upper division mechanics, that class when you're studying physics. And I just had the hardest time. I loved it, but it was very difficult. And then the other thing that's hard is quantum. I, I really just was scratching my head in quantum mechanics. I had to actually drop that class because I didn't even have the experience there than I had in a regular physics class, like a mechanics class. Um, because in those classes, I love the lecture. I'd understand the lecture. I'd be nodding my head, following along with the professor. And then I'd go and get my homework problems in these mechanics classes. And I could not figure out where to start, like where are you supposed to draw the force vector in order to start the problem? If I could just figure out sometimes, you know, I could picture the three-dimensional object that they're describing in the problem and figure out where the force vector was supposed to go, I could go somewhere with it. I just, I just had the hardest time. In quantum mechanics, I couldn't even have the experience of following along with the lecture in class and nodding the head and going, oh, yeah, this is so cool. Didn't even have that. I just had to drop it and leave. Did great in thermodynamics. Thermodynamics did not involve envisioning things in three dimensions. Anyway, so that's my physics experience for you. Nonetheless, I've got a little bit of physics context in my mind and came up with our title for today. Uh, everybody said everything about Fidel Castro. The only other unique thing that I have in terms of a perspective on Castro is an experience that I had. God, what is it? So it's been over 16 years, I guess, that we did this. You know, everybody's been talking about praising Fidel Castro, and some of the worst things is when you have world leaders praising Fidel Castro. But for me personally, it was hard to see this Newsmax story that I linked to in the program notes, and it's about Ilian Gonzalez. Ilian Gonzalez, you may remember, is or was the child who was brought here by his mother from Cuba. His mother tried to smuggle him here from Cuba, bring her with him, escape that horrible communist dictatorship and come to relatives in Florida. And she unfortunately died in making the voyage uh, over across the ocean. And so Ilion did make it to land, made it to some relatives, and then a huge political battle ensued where the relatives, of course, wanted to keep him here in a semi-free country, at least United States, incomparably more free than, than Cuba. And Castro decided that he wanted to make this a huge you know, political issue between United States and Cuba and demanded the boy's return, saying, of course, that the father wanted the boy back, as, as if you could trust anything like that. So many of you who are old enough will remember the iconic picture 
of Ilian Gonzalez, he was in the arms of the family friend. His name was, I believe, Ted Dalrymple. Is, is that correct? You guys in the chat room over at the at blog talk can tell me if I was right in that memory. But uh, they're hiding in a closet, I guess, in a little house in Miami. And armed, you know, uniformed U.S. officers come in and take this kid out of Dalrymple's hands by force, and they end up returning him to Cuba. And now, of course, Ilion is either completely brainwashed or completely subdued, and whatever opinions he's expressing are, you know, ones that probably are not his own, ones that he, are, he is expected to express. Uh, when I posted this, of course, I just posted the little sad face icon with it. And some people were thinking, oh, I'm sad that Ilion is praising Fidel, you know, like somehow that's unexpected that he would praise Fidel Castro. No, that's expected. The sad thing is that he's there and he's being forced to do this. The quote from Ilion is, it's quote, not right to talk about Fidel in the past tense, but rather that Fidel will be and he says, today more than ever, make him omnipresent, end quote. That's horribly, horribly scary. So Gonzalez was five when he, his mother, and others attempted a sea crossing between Cuba and the United States in 2000. His mother died on the voyage, but he survived and was taken to Florida. A bitter dispute broke out between his relatives in the U.S. who wanted him to stay there and his father back home. Castro, who died fr uh, the Friday night at 90, made the issue a national cause celeb and led huge demonstrations demanding Ilion be returned to his father. And it says U.S. authorities under Janet Reno, who died this year, eventually sent him back. Um, quote, Fidel was a friend who had a difficult moment, was with my family, with my father. He had to correct and made it possible for me to return to my father to return to Cuba, made it possible as if, you know, I met the kid, I saw the kid and I, I'm going to have to dig out. I've got an old picture. There, there's a journalist by the name of Scott Holleran who got me involved in the case many years ago. And, you know, I think if we're doing it, I knew we failed, but it was, it was worthwhile trying to do this. I saw this child. He was happy with his Miami relatives he was not traumatized. I never saw him once. Oh, gosh, I want to return to my father or anything like that. So this idea, you know, that, oh, he wanted to return to his father so badly, and he's grateful to Fidel for letting him go back. That's ridiculous. I was having a bit of a debate last night with some people on Facebook, actually one, one friend in particular about this, and, you know, saying there is no way – that I would return Ilian Gonzalez back to his father in Cuba. What the friend was arguing is that, well, if you stay on good terms politically with Cuba, then you make it possible to have even greater freedom. And Ilian himself, he was not going to be treated badly because, you know, again, he was going to be made this cause celeb and serve as some sort of a figurehead for Cuba. So, you know, this idea that Ilian himself was in any particular danger, you can dismiss that. And so can't you just say, you know, for the purpose of freeing Cuba more generally, then we should turn Ilion back over. And I, I disagree with that entirely. I would, I would not do that. I wouldn't believe 
any statement from the father that the father actually wanted Ilion to go back. You know, if, if I was in a similar situation, I would want my child to live in the freest country possible. I would not want the child returned back. And, and you know, you could say, okay, all around the world, there is no country that is completely free. We only have a bunch of semi-free nations all over the world. And then you just basically get a pick. The way I always like to put it is, you know, which of your limbs do you want to have chopped off? And depending on which country you live in, you can choose, you know, which limb you're going to go without. And that's how our freedoms are being curbed all over the world. But you could say that as a minimum standard, you shouldn't return a child to a parent in a dictatorship where legal exit is not possible. How about that? How about that as kind of a bare minimum standard? Because, again, remember the context. Ilion's mother died in order to bring her son to a free country. And so you do have one parent, and she was probably the primary custodial parent, as per tradition. She brings him to United States. She wants him to live here. So you have that express wish of one parent. You have family in Miami for him to stay with. And then you say, oh, well, you know, it would be best for him to return him to the father. The father wants him. You can't know that the father wanted him to be there. You can never know that. And second of all, like I said, you're putting him back in a situation where the father doesn't even have the option of bringing him back to the United States. So anyway, that's my rant about Ilion. I take Ilion as just one example, but to me a significant example of the death and destruction that was wrought by the Castro dictatorship and moreover how our government has sanctioned that horrible regime. It's just one, you know, you could say it's a small example, but I think it's a significant example of that. I've got a couple callers over on the switchboard at Blog Talk Radio. If you do want to call in, the number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. And press the one to let me know that you want to talk. Let me grab the first one right now. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hello. Hello. Is this Waldo? Yes, this is Waldo speaking. Hi. Excellent. I recognize your voice. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great, thank you. Um, I'm calling because uh, since you're talking about Cuba and Fidel, um, that my grandparents and father had to escape Cuba. Um, uh, I guess uh, 50 years ago or so. So, um, and then hearing this news that Fidel died, like, this was my grandparents, would have been my grandparents' happiest moment if they were still alive. Sadly, they passed away uh, four years ago and uh, my other grandparent two years ago. So they were not able to experience this. I mean, sadly, this doesn't mean that Cuba is going to immediately change into a better country, but at least it would have been so great for them. And um, I always remember all their stories that they told me when they lived there uh, about how horrible it was. So um, um, I'm really happy. All our family was celebrating and having drinks in honor <laughs> of his passing. So, um, yeah. No, I mean, but you could see that, though, right, as, as a bare minimum, right, uh, that 
you would not return a child to a country from which the other parent wouldn't be able to make the choice to escape with that child, right? That that uh, yeah, you know, not. there there there's no 100% free country in the world. We all have to kind of pick, you know, which countries have the attributes that are most important to us. This one has socialized medicine, but fewer regulations on starting of businesses. That one's got the beautiful climate and this, and this one's got this. And you just choose, right, according to your hierarchy of values where you want to live. But as a bare minimum, you could never say it was in the best interest of a child to be returned to a parent where that parent would not have the option of taking that child to the place that they choose is best for them to live in. That's horrible. Well, I mean, I think between Cuba and North Korea, they're basically slave states. You don't have free speech. You have to do what they tell you to do there. And, like, you have absolutely no freedom. You don't own anything because everyone owns everything. It's horrible. It's literally a slave state. And anyone who pretends otherwise is completely delusional or evil. Um, Right. And so when my family managed to leave Cuba, I was already a few years in after the revolution. Um, They were not able to leave immediately. And by the time they left, it had to be through a special lottery. Um, It also had to be, um, you had to have special conditions upon you. So luckily, uh, my family had a Spanish grandmother. So they could say, oh, okay, we're going to claim our Spanish citizenship or something like that. And so they could leave through Spain. They could leave through, like, the Spanish embassy. So then they had to go through a lottery to get those tickets, and then they would, on purpose, make sure that families had to leave separately. Different members of your family had to, like, your child might not leave with you. It would have to leave on its own. If, if the child got picked first in the lottery, then the choice would have to be send the child alone into Spain. Now, you know, back then you don't have internet, you don't have anything. Like, how do you know, like, how, where are you sending this kid to? Who's going to take care of him, something like that? Right. So my family had to go out. The ones I managed to get out had to go out through this system, like just letting some people out, and then with nothing, no money, no property, nothing, just like the bare minimum, like the clothes on your back and maybe a suitcase, but you can take anything else with you. And they wow. had people come to the airport to literally scream at you and yell at you and call you traitors and call you worms and spit on you and all this thing as you're trying to leave the country. These really horrible, horrible things. And I'll never forget, you know, what they told me. And if anyone reads We the Living by Ayn Rand, it is very, very close to what happened in Cuba. And it was, and it's horrible. So I, surprised, I was surprised to read the story about Fidel because I was just rereading We the Living um, this month. And, you know, just thinking about my grandparents and how, how similar it looks to Cuba. And then, like, seeing that Fidel, I'm like, oh, wow. Uh, it's almost like I planned to read this because I knew he was going to die. <laughs> wow. So really, yeah. really, like, so if anyone, anyone, I mean, I'm sure there's other books about what happened in Cuba, but at least Ayn Rand, like, wrote something that is, like, as close as it gets to a fictionalization of what it was like to live in Cuba. Yeah, I mean, communism is communism is communism, so there's going to be, you know, similarities in, in terms of, all the impositions on human life, all of the deprivation that they suffer. I mean, her, and every, her book oh. also is really good at showing what communism 
does to different kinds of people, how it affects them, how it affects like Kira who doesn't give up, how it affects someone who has potential but then finds no meaning in life so he just gives up, like all these different conditions. And like looking at Elian, like he had like no matter who he was, he had no choice into what he would become because if he didn't accept the party line of the communists, what was going to happen to him? He'd either get murdered or sent to a, a camp or, you know, forgotten forever. You know, he had to, even whether he believes what he says now or not, he had no choice. The, the, the only choice was to follow that if he wanted to live. I mean, I, I am horrified at what he might have had to endure because I don't think that Castro would have just accepted the option that, well, the kid didn't really choose to be a good, loyal communist, and so therefore we'll just kind of let him drift into obscurity. Castro put so much at stake with Ilion that probably they subjected him to all sorts of brainwashing and special conditioning in order to make sure that he would be a consistently good communist. I mean, he's certainly in the article that I quoted from, He's saying all the things, you know, that, that Fidel Castro is now going to be omnipresent, you know, eternal in some way is what he's implying. That that is just, I mean, it's just horrific if the kid actually believes it. And like I said, I, I saw him, he just, just looked like a normal kid. I remember him playing on some, you know, some playground equipment or something like slides, a little jungle gym or something. And he just I mean, seemed like a normal, happy kid. How dishonorable and disrespectful to, for this woman, his mother, who died yes. crossing the ocean to get here and to bring her kids. She died for him for so that mm-hmm. he could have a free life, and then they yep. send him back. Like, that yes. is just disgusting. Absolutely yeah. disgusting. So, yeah, Janet Reno died earlier this year, and that is the one thing, of course, that's seared in my mind in terms of her so-called legacy is destroying that child's life. And, uh, you know, again, there are people who thought, well, for pragmatic political purposes, we should have sent him back to keep relations good with Cuba because now they're saying that has made possible this recent relaxing of restrictions between us and Cuba and that that's going to help the you know, the, the quality of life, the freedom the that Cubans enjoy. The relaxation of these um, restrictions is the worst thing that could happen to the Cuban people. Because okay, so, no, so, so tell like me why. Because, them. I mean, in, in, in my mind, Waldo, I, you know, this guy, he's, I'm, I'm arguing with him on the, my little Facebook wall, probably too late at night. And, you know, he's saying, oh, it's good because, you know, there's going to be more freedom and, people can travel there and that somehow this is going to encourage the Cuban government to ease up on the citizens, improve their quality of life, improve the freedom that they enjoy. And I'm very skeptical about claims like that. Uh, One of the things that I was thinking of, of, you know, using in a title for the show is some sort of an idea about can you really achieve freedom without a real revolution? You know, how can you achieve freedom, a better state from within a system that's so bad, right? Um, and people always talk about this, you know, even here in the United States, how can you make things better and get on a path 
to a rights-respecting government? How can they do that in Cuba? Is it the right way, you know, for us to be relaxing restrictions and being at all friends with either the Cubans themselves or, or the regime? And, and is that going to help things? And I sincerely doubt it. I've got to dig up. There's, um, there's a quotation from Rand that I've got running through the Ayn Rand bot every so often. Ayn Rand bot is that account on Twitter that generates all the, the quotes out there automatically. And there's one about if you are friends with like the victims of a dictatorship, then somehow you are enabling that dictatorship, um, that you're, you're basically undermining the chances of, of freedom for those people. So what, why do you think, Waldo, that it's a bad thing? Um, so I, uh, I'd like to say two things that are sort of separate. Um, like, I think that the road is either the Soviet Russia road or the China road. Because China is still a communist country. But um, so in the Soviet road, it basically collapsed on itself. It could not exist any longer because that system is just not sustainable. Or so that can happen. Or what can happen is the China one where, uh, for whatever reason, the Communist Party realizes what the capitalism can do to maintain its existence. Um, so they allow capitalism to occur and therefore prolongs its own existence while at the same time bettering the life of the people there. Um, mm-hmm. So those are two routes that Cuba can take. What I would say about Cuba itself and how how um, how easing restrictions would help them is because they have shown no indication that they would embrace anything like capitalism or any kind of free market or any kind of freedom for its people. So basically, giving up on so basically the reason why Soviet Russia collapsed from inside was because there was the pressure. The pressure was there, and then they couldn't take it anymore, so they collapsed. Um, and if you saw, they lasted as long as they did because the United States helped them. The United right. States allowed them to take half of Europe. The United States gave them food, gave them technology, gave them all these things they would never be able to develop on their own. So the reason why people suffered as long as they suffered was because the good were willing to help them or delude themselves into helping them. And so the case that happens with Cuba, all the, all the horrible people who have been enslaving the Cuban people are still in that government. They're still there. They're still going to be evil. They'll, they'll still take all the money that comes in and use it for what they want, and the bare minimum will flow into the, to help the people of Cuba that are not connected in the government. Like, what so is, you, like so you, would, you would say you would say that what Obama has done, which is essentially, I think, allowing a bunch of people to travel to Cuba. It's not like the Cubans can leave. Right. Um, and we've still got dissidents being treated horribly and imprisoned and everything else in Cuba, too. So you would say that these measures, this relaxation of relations between us and Cuba is not helping the Cuban people. It legitimizes their government as a valid right. government, like as if our government considers their government valid or that has any right to rule. And that government that oppresses its people, that doesn't allow freedom of speech, and that, you know, sends millions of people out, that actually created labor camps for people who were either homosexual or priests or that they 
um, disagreed with the communists who didn't want to get involved in communist activities, like in We the Living, you had to be involved in communist activities, otherwise they wouldn't even give you a job because you have to go beg for a job. Those kind of people were sent to camps where they have to work 10 to 12 hour days um, trying to create, to make food, and, you know, have it all taken off and uh, now eat the minimum amount. So the slave camps, so uh, they were slave camps in a slave country. Um, so just horrible. And, like, and saying that this is okay, that what they've done to these people is okay, is just disgusting. Right, right. Now, let's draw a distinction and actually, oh, let, let me let me uh, finish up with one thing, and then we'll kind of discuss the the broader issue of, of giving freedom for these people in, in under dictatorship. What would you say to Trump? You know, Trump has gone out there and he's tweeting. Of course, in a tweet, there's not very much substance, but he's saying that he wants to help the Cuban people, that he's going to negate the deal that Obama has made with Cuba if they're not going to renegotiate it in a way that's better for the Cuban people. What would you, if you could advise Trump and say, here's what you should do to help the Cuban people, what would you tell him to do? Um, I'd have to be answering on the fly. I really have not put this question in my head. Okay. Um, okay. But... So, so, so then, then I don't know. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Like if you didn't have any definite idea, let me, because you know, I've been thinking about this again. It, it, it's, can you really improve a corrupt situation? You know, you could say either anywhere from a mixed economy situation like we have in the United States to communism, you know, and, and, and from what I understand, in Cuba now, under Raul Castro, you have had some loosening of controls here and here, you know, here and there, a little bit of introduction of free market elements in certain token places, maybe out of necessity, because, you know, again, these sort of regimes are going to collapse under their own weight after a while, like you were talking about with Russia. So in order to survive, they have to do some of this. And New York Times was saying that it was unclear whether those little bit of, you know, free market reforms that have been introduced there, whether those are because Raul wanted to do that um, and whether maybe he wanted to do more but had been constrained by his brother Fidel. You know, the, the issue was what's going to happen now for Cuba under Raul Castro. And everyone's just speculating, you know, it's going to be time will tell. But the the question is this, you know, can you from this state of either, you know, semi-freedom or very little freedom, can you without having an entire full-on violent revolution and overthrow of the current government actually get from point A to point B, right? This is we're hinging our lives some of us on this idea that we're going to be able to here in the United States where it's a lot freer than Cuba. We're going to be able to get from point A to point B. A lot of people talk about how, you know, in China they're introducing elements of capitalism and that that's the key to make China free in the long term. You know, it's not having necessarily that effect now, but it's going to in the future. You know, what can you do? And I keep hinging it on the idea of anything that you do that you think is going to help in that direction, you know, short of some sort of violent overthrow, right? Because these are rights violating regimes, right? So if you're going to do anything, you're, you're, you're kind of dealing with them, you're compromising with them. 
You should never do anything that is going to, you know, kind of violate the rights of of any of the people. It's got to be something that's like a full win-win on all sides. So, you know, for example, I would never send Ilion back to Cuba as, you know, some way of somehow politically placating the dictator there so that the dictator might agree to ease up restrictions on his people and then make everybody more free. Why? Because you are violating the rights of that child. You are sending that child into a situation in which his own best interests are not being taken into account. You know, we make custody decisions here based on the best interest of the child. So I wouldn't do that. But if you think, for example, about, you know, Nike building a factory in China and you think of all the people involved, you could say that each of the people, you know, the people who are working there and stuff for the factory, their lives are being made individually better off. And indeed, you might be having that positive effect, you know, that you, that you just you need to be very careful, though, right, you know, uh, in terms of what it is that you think that you're doing in service of transforming a, an unfree regime into one that is more free and then eventually a completely free country in which individual rights are protected. And I don't think handing over Ilion, for example, would be a way to achieve that. I don't think that the sort of deal that Obama has made with Cuba is the way, but I need to do some more research into this. I know that Ted Cruz has spoken out against the effect of the deal that Obama has made on the Cubans saying that it's not going to make it better. Maybe it's going to even make it worse. And I, I want to do some more research into this because I think it's, it's, it's a serious question. You know, can we, from where we are here in the United States, become more free? Uh, you talk about just the issue of school choice that I've talked about recently, school choice vouchers, voucher programs, sound like a good way to get from point A to point B, to get government completely out of education, but not if, as I fear is going to happen under Trump, you are going to pair school choice or vouchers with government control over private schools. That's one step forward, two steps back in my view. But as I understand, the Nevada voucher program does not put additional controls or any new controls on private schools in Nevada, it just expands choice for the individual, in which case you'd say, okay, maybe that is a legitimate step from point A to point B that doesn't require revolution. Do you get where I'm going with it, Waldo? Yeah, you're a transition, like, yeah, a policy that is like a transitional policy that would then change once there was a, you expect a change to happen in Cuba, so then you can, you're like facilitating that. I mean, I think that for like the the thing is like the, the the difference between China and Cuba, and why we should have two different economic um, situations with different countries is you know way back when when Cuba became a socialist country, um, that was all during the time of socialist expansion. They wanted socialists wanted the whole the world revolution, the whole world as one state, and so. That's why the United States had to cut ties with Cuba and impose sanctions to stop this um, totalitarian ideology from spreading any further. So that that like that that it didn't really have that problem with China because China was so far away and for other reasons as well. But um, 
any so this, so I think there's that that piece of history that's there that complicates things a bit. But I think the biggest thing that they could, if I were to say to Donald Trump what he should do, I think he should get rid of everything that Obama did in regards to Cuba, and say the U.S. will trade with you once you you free all your prisoners that are that are you accused of being revolutionaries or are dissidents, mm-hmm. you allow freedom of speech and you allow free elections. That's all. That's all that because that is that is the building block that you can that they that shows that they they will allow some freedom. Because right. otherwise the people are just, like that means that they are allowing the their own government to change. And then they they say like we will not trade with you at all. Unless you do this, if you do this, we will trade everything with you. In which case, I would show great motivation for the people there to be like, okay, it's not even that they're going to give us a little; they'll give us everything if we yeah. change this way. Maybe, maybe and, not weapons right away, you know. <laughs> well, but, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, everything except weapons. I didn't think okay. about that, uh, but I think because otherwise, you're just any other little step you take is just prolonging the existence of this government, a government yeah. unwilling to change. And so the, I think the only way to show change in the government or that they're considering change is to allow this, this most basic thing that they can give their people. Right, right. Yeah, freedom of expression is, is huge, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about with respect to oh, oh, and the they Trump say they are the voice of the people, right? It's a communist government, so they say they are the voice of the people. right? So they cannot deny if you say freedom of speech for the people there. You know, it's a harder thing, I think, to deny or just, like, if they, if they say no. Then you I, say, I was well, going to say, they, they, are, they, are the voice of, they are the voice of the people, but it's ventriloquist style with all the people being <laughs> the puppets, right? That's, that's really what they are. Right. <sighs> it's, it's incredibly sad. Uh, Waldo, I do have to go ahead and take another call, but I do appreciate you calling in and, and talking to me today. So anything else before I let you go? No, that's all, Amy. Thank you for taking my call. Okay, great. You take care. Have a good week, and we'll maybe talk again on Wednesday when I have the second show. I'm going to go ahead and grab this second caller before I go on. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi there. Hotep, how are you doing? Your name is? Hotep, H-O-T-E-P. Okay. Um, Are you one who was hanging out here in the chat room a bit ago? No. Okay. So uh, what what can I do for you? Because I haven't I haven't talked to you before. You're a first time caller. Oh, so no. welcome. Yeah, I'm a first time caller. Thank you. By the way, you have a, a very interesting show and a interesting delivery style. So congratulations. Um, a lot of what I see and I read chat room etc. is based on the old Russian communist concept, meaning it's us versus the Russians and the communists. I really don't see much evidence that we are any different. Right now, Standing Rock has made Okay, no, I think, I think actually uh, no, you are the one in the chat room, so I am going to have though. to go ahead and hang up on you right now, exercising my host prerogative to do that. Yes, um, Tim in the chat room also identified that that was indeed the person that I had kicked out of the chat room. So that's just as well because I have spoken to to Waldo for a while and I always love talking to him but I should get back over to the blog 
at don'tletitgo.com. Yeah, there's a little bit of a delay, I guess, in the, in the chat room, people telling me that that was him. It did sound familiar, and indeed it was. Let's go back over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com to the program notes. I've got there just a link to the TAFL, the Association for Objective Law, front of the court brief that I worked on for the Ilian Gonzalez case, if you want to take the the perusal of that, of course, it failed. We were not able to keep Ilion here in the country. The other bit of work that I did then, besides just going and doing a lot of activist stuff, going to Miami and um, you know participating in demonstrations there, I also participated in a demonstration in Los Angeles near our um, you know U.S. was it embassy? Not embassy, but um, you know whatever i can't i'm i'm trying to i'm just blanking on uh, the the name of the office the the federal office that i went to up in la and we did a demonstration out in front of anyway we did that and i also helped just work on a little bit do some research and writing on the actual court briefs submitted by the primary lawyers in the ilion case i'd met them and everything and this is again all due thanks to scott holleran who had connected me with the the case Leonard Peikoff, who I was married to at the time, he came out on one of the trips. I took two trips to Miami. He took uh, one with us, and we did this whole demonstration and everything. When I worked on the brief, the actual main brief that had to do with the law, the immigration law, as I understand it, there was this feet wet versus feet dry thing. And because Ilion wasn't a feet dry person, that it was easier to send him back in some way, or maybe he was a borderline case, this was part of what was going on with the brief, but it just turned into this horrible political thing. And, you know, that distinction, the feet wet versus feet dry is a, is a terrible one. Again, I never sent a kid back there. One thing I did want to talk about just briefly is this idea of, you know, the responses from world leaders to Fidel Castro's death. A lot of criticism has been heaped upon, for example, the prime minister in Canada, Justin Trudeau, where he talks about Castro being a remarkable leader who, quote, served his people for almost half a century, the country's longest serving president. He said that, yes, you know, Castro's a controversial figure, but he also said that, you know, he's going to speak for the, quote, supporters and detractors, who he said, quote, recognized his tremendous dedication and love for the Cuban people who had a deep and lasting affection for El Comandante, end quote. Um, if the affection is not voluntary, if you have no option, how could you even say that it really exists? And how can you say that he loved the Cuban people who he imprisoned and, in some cases, tortured and killed and deprived of basic human rights it is just horrible that we have any world leader, a leader of a semi-free country, saying that about this dictator. UK opposition leader, the Labour Party leader, Corbyn, he conceded that Castro had flaws, didn't name them, but he said that Castro was a champion of social justice. Horrible, despicable. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, What did he say? He says, I extensively talked with Fidel Castro in person. It is his his personality to believe and rely on people. 
Okay. Probably didn't come across very well in translation. And then the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker said, with the death of Fidel Castro, the world has lost a man who was a hero for many. I remember reading this one. A hero for people who want to oppress others or something? Is that for whom he's a hero? I don't know. Okay, continuing with the statement, he says, he changed the course of his country and his influence reached far beyond. Yeah, it reached to Venezuela where they're all starving, right? Again, continuing the statement, Fidel Castro remains one of the revolutionary figures of the 20th century. His legacy will be judged by history. How about his legacy could be judged by body count? How about that? Ireland's president, Michael Higgins. Higgins, nominally the head of state, writes reason, though in Ireland's parliamentary system, the role is largely ceremonial. He said in a statement, quote, having survived some 600 attempts on his life, Fidel Castro, known to his peers in Cuba as El Comandante, became one of the longest-serving heads of state in the world, guiding the country through a remarkable process of social and political change, advocating a development path that was unique and determinedly independent. Um, he's trying to be non-judgmental and use these words, you know, independent, remarkable, change, development, without talking about this is a march towards death and destruction. Yeah, okay, independent in some ways, I guess, but actually it's kind of old hat. Um, so that's five terrible responses to Fidel Castro's death from world leaders. Uh, the beautiful thing to look at is Cruz. Ted Cruz didn't mince any words, and he also had content to back it up in his piece, The Truth About Fidel and Rel. If you're on Facebook, you can also check out the video that Cruz posted. Actually, it wasn't just on Facebook. He was appearing on some of the talk shows talking about how despicable it was that people like Trudeau and then also Obama had some mild, mildly positive-ish, not too negative statement about Castro, which is, which is horrible. If you talk about what are the prospects for the future of the Cuban people, then what you need to see is what is it that the leaders of the free world are actually saying about the death of Fidel Castro, this horrible communist dictator. And to the extent that they are you know, not judging him as harshly as, as he needs to be judged or even judging him negatively at all, that's really alarming. And, and it means probably the future of, of Cuba is not that bright we're going to see what happens under Trump. Trump likes to make deals, though, and I'm afraid that the deals that Trump is going to make, because they won't be based on principle, are not going to help the Cuban people. But again, that remains to be seen. Let me check over back at the chat room and the switchboard. Tim says, history has been the judge. We've had enough. Yes, we have. Zima War says, let history be the judge of such a massive cop-out. All of that entire statement was a cop-out. You know, it's when people say, Oh, like like that guy on the, the phone, right? When I answered the phone a bit ago and he says, your show is interesting. That is a red flag right there if somebody just says interesting. It's it's too noncommittal. Either, you know, judge positively or judge negatively. Let me check out the switchboard. Okay, I've got a caller there, but 
the caller has not pressed one. If you do want to talk again, 760-888-5817 is the number, but do press one. So I'm going to go back now over to the issue of Trump. Again, we've got the title that I'm playing with on the show is that there is this conservation of dictatorial energy. And so the death of Fidel Castro has allowed for the expression of dictatorial traits by Donald Trump. That's, that's the play on this. Does it mean he's going to be an out-and-out dictator? Not necessarily. Just to remind you, I've got the links at the blog in the program notes to Ankar's Got, Ankar Gatte's piece, One Small Step for Dictatorship. And again, remember Gatte's thesis. Gatte's thesis is not necessarily that Trump's going to be a dictator. His thesis is that there are three qualities that, and, you know, sort of arguments, types of arguments that Trump used, and that these three arguments are those that smack of demagoguery, and that these three arguments are ones that played a significant role in getting him elected. Um, the, the three types of arguments are the fear-mongering, the scapegoating, and the appeals to be taken on faith or appeals to authority that you should, you know, just believe in him, put your trust in him. And if it's really true that those three things that he did played the significant role in getting him elected, and it says something about the American culture and how ripe Americans are for dictatorship. Not necessarily that we're going to have it this round, but that Americans are becoming alarmingly ripe for dictatorship because of the role of these three things that, you know, what that that role was in in getting Donald Trump elected. So I hope that makes the thesis clear. And, you know, if you understand the thesis, I don't think it's that controversial. I think it's clear that it played some role. And then the question is, how significant was the role that it played and how significant the role it played will tell you how bad off the American culture is, how ripe we are for dictatorship. But Gatte's thesis is that it, it was, this was a significant factor in a way that it hasn't been before. And that's why it's so alarming. This was something that we talked about in my show called Premature Evaluation. I've got the link Again, in the program notes, you can check that out if you missed that show. But what we have for today in terms of new evidence is this story. And New York Times, you know, got to give it to them because they point out the, the issue right in the headline. Trump claims with no evidence that millions of people voted illegally. And you've seen maybe this being thrown around, you know, there's this talk there maybe there's going to be a recount maybe there's not i actually doubt whether there could be any reversal of you know who, who won this election through a legitimate recount trump in the states that they're talking about won by so many votes like 70,000 in one state and the, the idea that you're going to you know change the result of the election via a legitimate recount it just seems very implausible to me but the thing that trump is talking about is the fact that he's lost the popular vote. And I guess it's about 2 million votes by which he may have lost the popular vote. Not that that even matters because we have a system of electoral college on purpose. We're not supposed to be having a popular vote anyway. But Trump is obviously probably personally offended. Maybe he's got the low self-esteem. Who knows what it is? But 
he is trying to counter all of the left. They're built, you know, they're going out there citing the fact that Hillary Clinton supposedly won the popular vote and saying that that is somehow significant and maybe Trump is less legitimate as a president because of it. And I guess Trump feels like he's got to counter this. So he just makes this assertion that probably 3 million people more than, you know, conveniently more than the amount that he lost by the lost the popular vote by that all of these people were voting illegally. That's the claim. And apparently he has presented it without evidence. Now, why is this disturbing? If you have a president, leader of the most arguably still most powerful country in the free world, going out there, making assertions completely arbitrary with no evidence. This just shows the bankruptcy of the guy's mind. This is really a problem. And in addition, what I've got over at the blog is this awesome graphic. I went ahead and embedded the tweet. So you give credit where credit's due. I ended up you know, kind of retweeting it. It ended up in my feed on Twitter. This guy on Twitter called Taniel, T-A-N-I-E-L. That's his handle on Twitter. He's got a graphic of Evan McMullen's tweet storm about Donald Trump. And Evan McMullen says, he says, it should not go unrecognized that real Donald Trump's effort to inflate his election performance without cause, he says, is typical of autocrats. And he goes ahead and, and there embeds, you know, the Donald Trump tweet. Donald Trump says, in addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. Again, New York Times is pointing out that he's asserting this without evidence. He's not telling you that he's actually got evidence that you've got millions of people voting illegally in the United States. I'm sure we have some people voting illegally in the United States. I've seen news stories talking about certain people who have voted illegally in the United States. Do we have millions? As far as I can tell, that is completely arbitrary. So you can send me some evidence, but we're on the premise now that McMullen is right, that this is arbitrary. He's offering it with no evidence. And, you know, and McMullen is talking about how this is a characteristic of autocrats. So I'm going to continue with McMullen's tweet storm. He says that they do it, these autocrats, to increase the perception of their political legitimacy while undermining popular opposition to them. And he says, and in the process, they do enormous damage to democratic institutions, which is a larger objective they share. He says, because it is those institutions and supporting norms that present the most significant check on an authoritarian's power. He says, when confidence in those institutions and norms has been sufficiently eroded, the authoritarian has a freer hand with which to wield power. And finally, he writes, those wishing not to experience this should speak up every time real Donald Trump attempts to walk us down this path. We must not tire of it. So again, you've got this arbitrary assertion in which Donald Trump is attempting to give more legitimacy to his win. And we have to remember, you know, remember this is something that Ben Shapiro tweeted out soon after Trump won the election, that Donald Trump won this election with fewer votes than Romney lost with when Romney was up against Obama. And that is significant. That takes away legitimacy from a Trump presidency. Am I saying that Trump may not do some good? No, Trump may still end up doing some good. 
Nonetheless, this is a red flag. This, you know, making of an arbitrary, uh, you know, assertion in order to make himself look more legitimate, to insulate himself from criticism, to undermine those institutions that would serve as a check on any authoritarian tendencies he has. These are things that we should be legitimately worried about. Let me go over back to the chat room and the switchboard. Yeah, it was a close selection. Jill Stein reminds Waldo in the chat room reminds us that Jill Stein also praised Castro. Of course, I'm not surprised there. Recounts are called for, says Arjun in the chat room. I don't know if they're going to be. We'll have to see. Um, Clinton conceded, says Justine is at the end of it, and Tim says no, that she took it back. <laughs> Old Toad says no take backs. What will be interesting is if Clinton is really, and I have seen that Clinton is taking it back, I guess that they are saying that if Stein does the recount that they're going to participate in it too. <sighs> Pretty funny. Um, if she does that, is Donald Trump going to take back what he said about not having an attorney general reopen the investigation into Hillary Clinton's mishandling of classified information? That'd be fun. Arjun says, shouldn't Trump now be for a recount now that he thinks that the results aren't trustworthy? Perhaps, right? There, And it's funny, I think there was something out there. There was some supporter of Trump who was trying to say, look, you know, months ago when I was telling you that the Wisconsin machines might be rigged, now I'm being proven right because even Jill Stein is saying that those machines might be rigged. So now... We have to look at it like somehow saying that this goes along with what this Trump supporter or guy who's in Trump's campaign actually wanted. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next few weeks. What do we have? We have a few weeks before the Electoral College, at least a couple of weeks before the Electoral College puts its final seal of, of approval on the results. And I guess a couple of things could happen between now and then. But again, what I'm concerned with here is... Trump's making of an arbitrary assertion, no evidence, in order to make himself look more legitimate, to insulate himself from criticism, insulate himself from the pressure of those democratic institutions that are designed to serve as a check on his authority. And, you know, again, going along with this theme, Trump does exhibit some dictatorial tendencies, and these are of concern. The next link that I've got over at the blog, again, don't let it go.com, check it all out, is a story from last week, and it was the transcript. I'm now calling any transcript of an interview with Trump or a speech of Trump, I'm calling them Trump scripts. I hereby dub the new word for the next four years, assuming again in a few weeks that the Electoral College is going to put the rubber stamp on the results that we're actually going to have Trump as our next president. It's probably going to happen. But I guess some weird things could happen between now and then. I mean, just stay tuned. Um, I'm calling them Trump scripts. So that's the word, the Trump script. The full Trump script of the New York Times interview is published at the New York Times. And thanks to my friend Quint Cordaire, our attention has been drawn to the very end of the interview where Trump says something fairly disturbing about the issue of freedom of expression. So right now I am scrolling down 
And I could talk about the gorgeous weather in California today while I'm scrolling down to try to get to the end of the Trump script. I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. We actually do. We have just beautiful low 60s Fahrenheit with sun and everything else going on in Southern California, which is appropriate November weather. We had a lot of rain, but that's fine. Um, Talking about Miami. Okay, we keep going. We keep going. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Sorry, guys. I just wish I could get to the very bottom more quickly. Let me see if I can be a little... Oh, yeah, I better I better be a more efficient user of my computer here very quickly. Otherwise, you'll be, you're going to be here all day. Okay, let me get to the very end. Um, yeah, okay. So here we go. Last question. Mark Thompson asks, he says, thank you. It's a really short one. But after all the talk about libel and libel laws, are you committed to the First Amendment to the Constitution? Are you committed to the First Amendment to the Constitution? This is the question put to Trump. First of all, here's Trump's response. He says, oh, I was hoping he wasn't going to say that. So he doesn't want to talk about the First Amendment. That's a red flag in and of itself. And here's what Trump says. He says, I think you'll be happy. I think you'll be happy. He says, actually, somebody said to me on that, they said, you know, it's a great idea softening up those laws, but you may get sued a lot more. He says, I said, you know, you're right. I never thought about that. I said, you know, I have to start thinking about that. So I think you'll be okay. I think you're going to be fine. End quote from Trump. So what's the premise here? Now, again, you know, what's the issue about softening the libel laws? He wants to soften, so-called soften the libel laws. He wants to make it easier for people to sue for libel. And in particular, he wants to make it easier for public figures like him to sue for libel so that people are going to be more scared to say bad things about him, right? And if you are a president, of course, that's very scary. So, you know, and again, I think the current libel laws, you would have to show me that the current libel laws do not strike a proper balance in terms of protecting the real rights of people against having their reputations unfairly destroyed, their rights violated versus the actual First Amendment. It's not a balancing you know, issue, so to really. It's identifying where the right to free speech ends and where a rights violation begins, right? We have to talk about this in different contexts. We have to talk about this with respect to incitement to violence, the shouting fire in the crowded theater, right? There's these places where you have to be very principled in applying this idea of freedom of expression and realizing where somebody is freely expressing ideas versus violating another's rights. And if you are actually committing libel, if you are spreading falsehoods about a person in a way that damages their reputation, then yes, you are violating their rights. You do not, that is not part of your freedom of speech, just as much as it's not part of your freedom of of speech to incite violence. So we need to draw those lines carefully. I don't have any evidence that the current law does not draw the appropriate boundary between those two. So if Trump is wanting to make it easier to sue people, what he wants to do is he wants to prevent people from exercising their freedom of expression to the full extent that they should be able to under the First Amendment. Uh, So that's the context, right, that he's been thinking of doing this. So then he's asked, you know, are you going to do this or are you going to respect the First Amendment? 
And he says, well, you know, essentially, I'm thinking of doing it. I was thinking of doing it. But the thing that's going to stop me from doing it is that I personally, Donald Trump, who spends my whole day tweeting out this stuff about people, maybe I'm going to get sued more. Practically speaking, this may impinge on my lifestyle, might cramp my style, thinks Trump. And so, well, if it's going to cramp my style, if I can't tweet a bunch of garbage out about people all the time and be free of being sued, then maybe I don't want to change the libel laws. After all, maybe I want to go ahead and let you have your right to free speech. He says, I think you'll be okay. I think you're going to be fine. This is not something you tell somebody. It's like, are you going to take away my freedom of expression? Oh, well, yeah. I think you're going to be okay because, you know, if I did take away your freedom of expression, it would probably cramp my style too. And I don't really want that. And so, you know, what's the message? If he could figure out a way that he wouldn't be sued, which I'm sure he can actually in the current law, right? Um, That he wouldn't be sued, even though we would be sued more often for criticizing him. He'd love it. But as it stands, you know, his little, I was going to say his little brain, he's smart, but it, when he's talking about political principles, he does not understand political principles. So I'm not going to say his little brain. He's got a good mind with respect to a lot of things. You know, as Haley Mary from Jezebel's was saying, he got himself elected in one of the most liberal eras that we've ever seen, right? So he's got a mind on him, but his mind is not capable of thinking about politics in principle at all. Uh, not about political principles like freedom of expression. So, you know, here he says, I I think you're going to be fine. Um, It's not at all about upholding the principle of free speech. It's him deciding whether or not he's going to do this. You know, it's it's alarming to ask somebody who's going to be the president of the United States, are you going to continue to protect my freedom of expression? You're supposed to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. And he says, yeah, you know, I, I think you'll be fine. I, I think I'm probably going to continue protecting it because if I didn't protect it, it, it might cramp my style. I'm not able, you know, right now, because I don't have the understanding of law and, and politics and, and political principles enough to figure out a way that I can tweet up a storm without repercussions and, you know, take away your freedom of expression to criticize me since, since I can't think of that yet. I'll just, Go ahead and continue. John in the chat room says, yeah, he's a New York liberal at heart. Just Jean says, yeah, we'll only have free speech because Trump lets us. That's not free speech. And that's exactly the point. You know, his idea of the, the premise is he's got the power to go ahead and change libel laws or do other things that are going to impinge on our freedom of expression. And he's just, you know, probably not going to do it because he doesn't want to be sued more. That is scary. So, yes, this is another concrete example, one little concrete example. We're going to keep bringing those out, allowing you to integrate and add it up to a big total. Let me give you one more. And this is thanks to a Facebook friend of mine by the name of Stephanie Gutman, who is a kick butt woman in in her own right. The article doesn't really say anything about Trump. Uh, It just is about, in general, biofuel quotas. Headline from Bloomberg, U.S. boosts refiners' 2017 biofuel quotas to 
record levels. But somewhere in this article, there is, yeah, here it is. I found the, the passage about Donald Trump's view of biofuel quotas. And, you know, what they're saying right now is that the mandates right now are above the levels the agency proposed in May and also above last year's requirements. For the first time, the targets match a 15 billion gallon ceiling that Congress established for conventional renewable fuels and creating a program to boost their use 11 years ago. Now, they're saying the 2017 quotas are certain to increase pressure on Congress and President-elect Donald Trump to overhaul the renewable fuel standard. And they say, while Trump is unlikely to rescind the new targets now that they've been finalized, he may support efforts to overhaul it by Congress. And then they're saying this is Trump's take on the issue. During his campaign, Trump had varying views of the program. In Iowa early this year, Trump said the U.S. should increase biofuel mandates. What do biofuel mandates do? It increases, I guess, the percentage that they're supposed to use corn and all this stuff, right? So it's a big subsidy for farmers. And remember, Ted Cruz, as I recall, won Iowa while coming out against this. And this, um, is, is that right? Is, is this the state that he won? I, I seem to remember this. Um, but here's Trump, you know, we should increase it. In September, however, Trump's campaign issued a fact sheet calling for the elimination of the system for buying and selling biofuel blending credits, uh, credits, which was following upon the criticism from billionaire investor Carl Icahn. And then later, his campaign reissued the fact sheet without the language opposing the system. So he has flip-flopped just during the time of his campaign. It's not one of these issues where, you know, Many, many years ago, he had this take on abortion, and then his opinion evolved. Some of the politicians are doing this on certain issues. He has flip-flopped during his campaign, and it seems like for purely pragmatic reasons, based maybe on the pull of certain donors, maybe this billionaire gave him a donation, which for a while had some influence about eliminating the system of buying and selling these biofuel blending credits, as they call them. What's the message? The message is interventions in the economy. You cannot even predict whether you are in a sector of the economy that is going to be subject to governmental force. You know, if you are a person who has a business in a sector that's regulated and you see that the president-elect is flip-flopping about whether those regulations are going to continue or in what direction or whatever, you cannot plan long range, right? And Rand used to talk about the idea that one of the worst things about a dictatorship would be if the laws to which you were subject would be constantly shifting. And whenever you see, you know, Donald Trump, he's now the president-elect, you see that he was for this regulation and then he's against it and then he's for it again you have no idea what's coming you have no idea what to expect you cannot plan your business long range any idea that you're going to invest significantly in your business hire new employees do all those things is down the tubes um, this is one of the worst things i think that a leader could do you know it, it's bad enough that these are rights violating provisions right these regulations are initiations of force by the government in advance of or in completely in the absence of any 
rights violation, right? There is no rights violation that consists of not using corn as part of your biofuel or whatever, you know, there should be no mandates about this kind of stuff at all. And the idea that not only are there going to be mandates, but whether they're going to be mandates or at what level the mandates are going to be, maybe we're going to eliminate the program, maybe we're going to change it in certain ways, that it changes from moment to moment. That is, I mean, you know, the thing I'm reminded of is the Joker in the Dark Knight Returns or Dark Knight Rises, which of the movies, where the Joker is saying that the way that you really put terror in the hearts of people, that you really make their life miserable, is utter chaos where there are no rules. You know, if the rules are harsh, but the rules are predictable, that is much easier to live under than under somebody who is just going by whim, by the seat of his pants, and doesn't care, doesn't care enough to tell you what his settled view is on issuing regulations to an entire industry. In in the chat room here, they're talking about what the taxes on ethanol and stuff are, over $25 a gallon. This is crazy. Um, Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. Very brief view of a violation of rights that you see here. Yeah, but this is, you know, this gives you just some idea about how little respect Trump is having for people, this flip-flopping on an issue that is going to affect the lives and livelihood of so many people potentially. What you need, you know, what you need, of course, would be to remove these regulations entirely. But at least if those regulations are going to be there, have the respect for the individual to you know, have a stable view of what is going to happen in the future. There's other stuff too out there. Donald Trump has this tax plan that he was saying was going to reduce taxes for everybody, but it turns out there's a huge segment of the middle class, or at least a significant segment of the middle class for whom Donald Trump's tax plan would represent a tax increase. You would not have expected a tax increase under a Donald Trump, and yet there it is. That might actually be happening as well. That's not necessarily a dictator, so to speak. But, you know, like I said, this, this, um, you know, this idea of of flip-flopping and and the idea that you're going to leave people in suspense as to what laws are actually going to apply to them, and they aren't able to plan long range, that would definitely be synonymous of some of the most brutal of, of dictators, because you cannot plan your life long range. So that's just a Another little concrete. Let me go back over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com because I have a few more program notes that I wanted to talk about before the end. I did check over on the switchboard. If anybody on the switchboard did want to talk, press 1 now. If you want to call in really quick, I have a couple more minutes, 760-888-5817. Otherwise, I think I should try to finish what I've got over here. I've got a reminder of the show if you haven't listened to it yet. Trump cabinet picks so far, good, bad, and ugly. I'm still waiting to hear whether the John Allison potential pick is more than a rumor. I know that he was only one person that was on a list of several people who might be chosen. We're now seeing that Romney might be the current top pick for Secretary of State as opposed to Ambassador John Bolton, who I thought was going to be the natural pick and everybody thought was going to be the pick, but I guess now it's either Romney or Giuliani that they're talking about. So that's kind of sad. Um, But yeah, the good, the potential good was John Allison. The bad that I talked about in that show was DeVos, the education 
pick. And I said the education pick, DeVos, is bad as judged by the statements that they've issued since making the pick. The idea that you can make American education great from the seat of the federal government. Federal government cannot make education great. The federal government can issue regulations. It can point a gun. The only people who can make education great are the educators themselves. So what do they plan to do? Maybe there's going to be more, quote, school choice and vouchers. But as I warned, because they are talking about making national standards that are, quote, higher and better than Common Core, they are potentially going to be talking about expanding the application of those standards to private schools. And that's alarming because that would be, you know, like I said, you might think it's a step forward to allow school choice with vouchers, but it is a huge step back in terms of freedom if you're going to impose federal regulations, federal education regulations on private institutions of education. That would be truly, truly horrendous because as it stands right now, the private schools are a place that you can escape. You can escape government schools. You can escape the indoctrination and the poor quality of education by either homeschooling or sending your child to private schools. And I'm wondering if that will even now continue under a President Trump. You know, he thinks he's going to make it better. He's going to make it great. And then actually what he's going to do is he's going to increase the reach of the federal government to you know, potentially apply to, to private schools. That would be terrible. Ugly. The ugly pick that I talked about, go ahead and listen to the show, but it's Pompeo, the CIA pick. And I talk about, in particular, Pompeo's view that Snowden should be tried for treason and ultimately executed. Um, you know, what would it mean if our United States government, the government of the best and freest and most philosophical country in human history, the one country that was founded on the principle of individual rights, what would it mean if our country executed Snowden, who I believe was a legitimate whistleblower against a horrible rights-violating program that our NSA has engaged in, um, you know, the, the idea that you're going to execute a legitimate whistleblower, that you're going to, um, you know, use him as an example of what you get when you stand up against an overbearing government that's systematically violating our rights. It's a horrible symbol. It's horrible, you know, concretely as well. I've come to like Snowden over the years that we've seen him speak on, on his issues and why, why he did what he did. So that's the ugly pick for me. The, the idea that under Trump, you might actually get Trump to give Putin over to us. And then, I mean, get, 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 excuse me, that Trump might get Putin to give Snowden over to us. And then they're maybe going to execute Snowden. That's horrific. Quite, quite ugly. Also on the program notes, this horrific story that's been going around, and I'm clicking on it with a little bit of zest there because it's truly horrendous that this happens. This is a Washington Post article reporting on a Moroccan TV show. After the beating, a Moroccan TV show airs makeup tips for hiding domestic violence. And they have a little video clip that you can play. You can, again, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. You'll find the link to this story. The Washington Post writes, The smiling woman on the daily Moroccan television show spoke to viewers as if it were any other makeup tutorial 
comparing brands and hues of face foundation and demonstrating how to apply it. Seated next to her was a woman with what appeared to be a black eye and bruises on her cheekbones. Quote, after the beating, this part is still sensitive, so don't press, end quote, the host said in Arabic as she applied makeup on the woman's face, eventually concealing the woman's bruises. Quote, make sure to use loose powder to fix the makeup, so if you have to work throughout the day, the bruises don't show, she said. The makeup tutorial aired Wednesday on Moroccan State Television instructed viewers how to use concealer to, quote, camouflage the traces of violence against women. This has spurred outrage on social media that prompted an apology from the channel. The segment was broadcast two days before the U.N. International Day for Elimination of Violence Against Women, The Guardian reported. Quote, it's a subject we shouldn't talk about, but unfortunately that's what it is. The segment's host, Leela Moulin, said in the tutorial, quote, we hope that these beauty tips help you carry on with your normal life. That is horrific that in you know 21st century you're seeing this make sure to go to the blog and check out two more links there is the fog bow a gorgeous picture by melvin nicholson which i've been using as my cover photo over on facebook and so i wanted to give him a plug you can get a print of that awesome print if you would like to of that awesome photo and then another one that is Fun with Mozart, a hat tip for that one goes to Quint Cordaire, or was it James Valiant? I think it was James Valiant who posted the fun with Mozart. Maybe Quint posted it too, who knows? Thank you for passing that along. I think you'll enjoy that. Everyone, thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed our little show. You can check out my little live video. If you think I should do more of those, go ahead and click like on my little live video over on Facebook, and I will speak to you on Wednesday. Again, that's 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific, right back here at Blog Talk Radio. Take care.